The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, An Open Door, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And we're blessed this evening, again, with an opportunity to consider the Lord's address uh, to this precious church at Philadelphia, from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and what the Lord has intended now for this church, or what the Lord has intended for the other churches that we've looked at, the other addresses, um, he says what he says, he says in the hearing, so to speak, and for the benefit of every church. Uh, He's preaching to them, or he's discussing this in our hearing. Uh, We get to overhear, as it were. We get to uh, bend our ear and listen in. Uh, But these words, as much as as they are addressed to these individual churches and now to the Church of Philadelphia, they're addressed to us. They're for us, for our benefit, for our encouragement, for our warning, for our instruction, for our rebuke, for our correction. Uh, These words are for us as well. In this period, between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, Uh, his church will continue to be the church militant, the church persecuted, will continue to be persecuted, continue to be slandered, continue to be harassed, uh, continue to face temptation to compromise because of the forces arrayed against us, often by those who profess to know the Lord and will battle the dullness within our own heart like the loveless Ephesians had to, will battle to be steadfast in the face of assault like the persecuted church at Smyrna, will fight to remain uncompromising against error, unlike the compromised churches of Pergamos and Thyatira. And we must walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, taking a lesson from the dead church at Sardis. So each church addressed in each generation then, facing these what are representative battles, if you will, representative difficulties until the Lord returns, from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ until his soon return. And the instruction that we need to face those battles and to do what we must do in our generation, that instruction is found right here in God's word. And specifically, it's found in these letters to the churches. These letters are for us as we face the battles in our own generation. And the strength that we need To fight those battles is found supplied by the seven spirits who are before the throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So tonight in our own battle, as the church militant in our own generation, we take encouragement now from the example of the church at Philadelphia. There's much at Philadelphia to commend. And so this example, this church is very encouraging to us. And on the trade route now that connects the seven churches Uh, in Asia Minor. Philadelphia is about 30 miles southeast of Sardis in modern-day Turkey. Turkey, Asia Minor is a Roman, a province of the Roman Empire. The name of the city, Philadelphia, was given by its founder, King Eumenes, King Eumenes II, 189 BC, and the name of the city was given in honor of his brother, Attalus II. Uh, The proven love, the proven loyalty of Attalus for his brother, King Eumenes, had earned the king's commendation and the epithet, Attalus Philadelphus, the one who loves his brother. And so the city that he built in his brother's honor named Philadelphia. Now this original city, the original city of brotherly love, uh, far from Pennsylvania, uh, 
This was a small church there in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. This is a small church that loved the Lord. They loved the Lord. They loved one another. The Lord refers to her as having little strength. Um, it's obvious that this church had a strong faith. So little strength uh, possibly or likely means that this was a small, a small church. Little strength. But the believers in Philadelphia were devoted to the Lord with all of their strength. Devoted to the Lord without compromise. Devoted to the Lord. Determined to hold fast to the Lord's name. And in that, they are a good example to us. It's such that, that Robert Murray Machane noted in the 19th century that the church at Philadelphia in the 19th century had 800 professing Christians among its 2,000 uh, citizens or its 2,000 residents. Uh, many of those now since, ever since, forcefully driven out of Turkey at the point of a spear under the violent and wicked spread of Islam. But that was a commendation indeed that the church had lasted all of that time and through the 19th century had a large, Jesus Christ had a large following in Philadelphia of professing Christians. But now it's to this small, weak, uh, feeble, persecuted church, to this small church, but a beloved church in Philadelphia, that the Lord now directs his address. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. In other words, to that angelic messenger that connects in our understanding, as it were, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, or the, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, so to speak. Um, it connects the very throne room of God where our great intercessor is seated at the right hand of the majesty. It connects the throne room of God to the church militant on earth. In other words, there's no disconnect. There's no disconnect between the two. That should be encouraging to us, right? As we meet here tonight, the, we're doing spiritual things here, right? This is not mundane, earthly common business that we conduct in the church, right? This is the church on earth connected to the very throne room of God. This is a, there's a heavenly connection, a spiritual connection between the two. And that connection is exemplified here in the angel that carries the message to Philadelphia, right? To the angel of the church at Philadelphia. In other words, from, from the throne room of God, from the heart of our intercessor, Right? from the heart of our mediator, the one who walks amongst the, the lampstands, to this precious church in Philadelphia, this letter goes. Make sense? There's a connection there, right? There's no disconnect between the two. Uh, this simply highlights that connection, highlights the intimacy of that connection, the, the personal nature of that connection. It's emerging, if you will, uh, physical and spiritual realities. So to this angel of the church of Philadelphia write, Verse 7, these things says he who is holy. These says, things says he who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts. He who shuts and no one opens. So the Lord begins now, verse 7, with a threefold description of himself. Threefold description of himself. And it's, it's helpful to think about how this direction ties Jesus Christ or in our understanding to who he is. He is holy, he is true, and he's been given the key of David, okay? Now, when we think of God, we tend to think of God in terms of his attributes. That's our way of thinking about him often. And we know God analogously or by analogy uh, by way of his attributes, so to speak, 
Now, we think of God often in terms of his attributes. We think God is loving, right? God is gracious, God is merciful, God is just, and God is righteous. As much as we know what true love is, we think that, uh, or the way that we understand true love from the Bible, we understand God to be loving. And as much as we understand what grace means, as grace is revealed to us, what it is and defined for us in the Bible, that's how we think of God. God is gracious. However, the doctrine of divine simplicity, very important, the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches us that God is not composed of parts. He's not composed of attributes in that way. Our confession states that he is without body, in other words, without a physical form. He is without parts and without passions. Now, parts there is not referring to body parts like hands and feet. It means that God is not composed of components. He's not put together of individual or unrelated parts to make God it's not that God is not composed of his attributes in that way, as though there, were, there was anything outside of God that could be necessary to his pure existence, right? There is this thing called love, there is this thing called gracious, and there is this thing called benevolent, and you put benevolence, which is benevolent in and of itself, you put benevolence and graciousness and love, and you get the character of God. No. The Bible refers to God not being composed of his parts or not being composed of his attributes. The Bible refers to God as love. God is love. God is truth. And we know love because God, right? Because the existence of God manifests to us, right? Manifests to us what love is. The existence of God manifests, his very being manifests to us what truth is. In that sense, God is simple. He's not composed of parts. He is pure being, Again, that's why the Bible can say in truth that God isn't merely loving, but that God is love. There's a distinction, right? God isn't merely honest. God is truth. The true love that we see or the true love that we experience is like or faintly similar to who God actually is. And we know God analogously like in that sense. So what we can take from that is this. We know from the Bible that God is altogether not like us. Altogether not like us. The word, the word that most captures that transcendence, and again, again we're dealing with, with finite human language that can only go so far in communicating glorious, incomprehensible truths, right? But in finite human language, the word that most captures or encapsulates that, that transcendence of God, the, the word from within the confines of human language that best communicates the infinite chasm between the creator and the creature is the word holy, is the word holy. That word communicates transcendence. God is altogether other altogether different. He is nothing in that sense, nothing like us. So that word then, Revelation chapter 3 verse 7, that word on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ is a profound declaration of his deity, right? A profound declaration of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. That very same description is used of Yahweh in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. Turn there, Revelation 6 
Look at the other, the page to the right. <laughs> Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Oh, uh, how long, O Lord, holy and true. Those souls who'd been slain for the word of God, crying out from under the altar, are crying out to Yahweh. Oh, Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. For anyone else to refer to himself as holy and true would be blasphemous. Right? Can you imagine any created being standing up in the throne room of God saying, I am holy and true? <laughs> He'd be a lunatic, an absolute lunatic. It would be blasphemous to utter those. And yet, these are the words on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ to this church at Philadelphia. I am holy. I am true. The one who is true. Right? Absolutely amazing. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is holy and true. Over 25 times in the book of Isaiah alone, Yahweh is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. 25 times in the book of Isaiah. Just listen to a few of these examples. Isaiah 43, chapter, th uh, chapter 43, verse 3. Again, many times in Isaiah up to this point, right? Chapter 43, verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, this is Yahweh speaking, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Isaiah 47, verse 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Isaiah 48, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. Isaiah 49, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. It's Yahweh. Right? When Jesus Christ comes on the scene, then in his incarnation, I find these connections fascinating in scripture. When Jesus Christ comes on the scene, demons encounter him. Early in his ministry, the demons begin to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, and they know, those demons know, exactly who they're dealing with. Mark chapter 1, verse 23, listen. There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. This is Mark chapter 1. Right? A man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right? John 6, the Lord teaches a very difficult lesson. The difficult lesson that the Lord teaches in John chapter 6, the doctrine of total depravity, the doctrine of unconditional election, the doctrine of efficacious grace, the doctrine of definite atonement, all in one masterful statement from the Lord, right? All in this brief interaction uh, with the so-called disciples in John chapter 6. And just like those same lessons do today, those lessons left the goats stomping off angry in a frenzy, and the crowd goes from about 3,000 down to about 12, and the Lord turns to his disciples, and he asks them, do you want to leave also? Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. 
Now, what's amazing to me, it's obvious, crystal clear, inarguable. We're almost wasting breath to argue with the fact that Jesus Christ is God, right? He is clearly asserting that in the Bible. The Bible clearly asserts that about him. There's no question. But as much as that amazing, what's amazing about that assertion and what's amazing about these words, in particular, this claim or this assertion of holiness on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ is that that assertion of transcendence, the fact that he is one altogether set apart, as the scripture describes, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens, is spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ bodily from heaven. The one who is incarnate, right? The one who took on human flesh. In other words, you, you see the, 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 the merging of transcendence and imminence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Awesome. He is the transcendent one. He is holy and true, and he speaks those words of his own transcendence, his own holiness, an infinite holiness, a divine holiness. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who stepped out of heaven to come to earth as a man, humbled himself to come as a slave and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross for his own. He took on flesh. There couldn't be anything more imminent, more personal, more intimate than the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ to save his own. You see how personal that is? In other words, not remaining in all his ways transcendent, but stooping, condescending to come near to us. Uh, It's an amazing thought. These words on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has now been raised bodily. He is bodily in heaven, a man in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, always living to make intercession for us. It's an awesome, awesome thought. The one who is holy, the one separate from sinners, stooped in love and grace to become the friend of sinners and died in the place of sinners, in the stead of ruined sinners. Awesome thought. I love this hymn. He sent no angel to our race, naught would do of lower place, but wore the robe of human frame and to this world himself he came. For us baptized, for us he bore his holy fast and hungered sore. For us temptation sharp he knew, for us the tempter overthrew. For us he prayed, for us he taught, for us his daily works he wrought. By words and signs and actions thus, still seeking not himself but us. For us, by wicked men betrayed, for us in crown of thorns arrayed, he bore the shameful cross and death, for us he gave his dying breath. Awesome. The one who is transcendent became the one who is to us personally and intimately imminent. He is the one who walks among the lampstands. He is holy and he is true. The true Messiah, the true son of God, the true light that has come into the world, the true bread from heaven, the true vine, the way, the truth, and the life. 
the amen, the faithful and the true witness. As holiness is used here to refer to the divine transcendence, true is used to to describe or refer to the divine character. He is holy and he is true. Lastly, verse 7, it is he who has the key of David. He has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts. It is he who shuts and no one opens. In chapter 1, if you remember chapter 1 and our look at the description of the Lord Jesus Christ there, in chapter 1, he's the one having the, the keys of Hades and of death, right? And having the keys of Hades and death communicates his sovereignty or his authority over death and hell. He is sovereign. He has all authority, even over death and hell. Here, he holds the key of David, right? And again, communicating his sovereignty and authority. But now it's his sovereignty and his authority over the kingdom of God. His sovereignty and authority over the kingdom. He has, given the keys, he has the power over the door, so to speak. He opens, no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens. We're going to look at this more next week. But that language, the language of verse 7, is a direct quote from Isaiah 22. Turn, there, uh, turn back there with me, Isaiah 22. That language of verse 7, a direct quote from Isaiah 22. And I want us to understand something uh, very important here about the way in which God fashions or directs history. <laughs> uh, how God reveals history to us and the lessons that we're to learn from that. So I want us to look at Isaiah 22 together. Uh, he is the one... God is the one who decrees all things whatsoever that come to pass. Decrees all things. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, the Bible says that, right? No one snuck in and scribbled that on the pages of your Bible somewhere. God himself says that. He directs most things, all things, some things, all things. He directs all things, works all things after the counsel of your choice. No, after the counsel of his own will, okay? You can't get any clearer than that. What God is asserting there, he is the one who is sovereign over history itself. So history itself then is heading somewhere. History itself is pointing somewhere. And we see examples of that divine trajectory over all of scripture. We see it throughout scripture. So in Isaiah 22 then, the prophet Isaiah proclaims the coming of God's judgment against Jerusalem and Judah for her sin, right? The coming of God's judgment. At the center of this coming judgment is a scoundrel by the name of Shebna the scribe. And it's referenced there in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15. Shebna has been given a stewardship. That is, he has been appointed as a steward. And he's, in his stewardship now, has been given authority over the house of David. So Shebna the scribe is given stewardship over the house of David. Who's David? David's the king, right? Not king at this time. But what that means is that Shebna the scribe has the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. He opens, no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens, okay? He's been given authority over the government of the king. Shebna has stewardship over the kingdom. The keys, in that sense, as they would say in those days, have been laid over his shoulder, so to speak. 
the government has been placed upon his shoulder, so to speak. He's been given authority to open and close, to regulate at his own pleasure with the authority of the king. He is second to the king alone. Do you see? That's the stewardship of Shebna the scribe here in Isaiah 22. Now, it is supposed from Scripture that Shebna is envious of Eliakim. Eliakim. Eliakim was the son of Hilkiah, and Hilkiah was the former steward under King Hezekiah. So you can imagine, right? Hilkiah, former steward, the one with the key, so to speak, under Hezekiah, it would only seem natural, maybe even normal, for then the key to pass to Eliakim. But Shebna finds the key in his own possession now. He's the steward. He's been given authority as stewardship, but Shebna is envious of Eliakim. When Sennacherib, king of Assyria, moved against Jerusalem, Eliakim and Shebna, if you remember the account, were sent as diplomatic emissaries to meet with the Rab Shaka. I like that title, Rab Shaka. Rab Shaka was a bad guy, though, so we're not going to take his title. Uh, it was thought that Shebna, when they were relating to or communicating with the Rab Shaka, it was thought that Shebna conspired with Assyrian. Such that when in Shebna's mind, Israel would be defeated by her enemies, Assyria, he would maintain his position as the one being in charge of the kingdom or as government uh, governor over the kingdom. So he plotted with Assyria to maintain his position. And while he was plotting and scheming, the traitor even built for himself a large tomb in Israel, in Jerusalem, the tomb of a hero. So Shebna, if you can imagine, you build a tomb for yourself when you think you're going to be there for a long time. That's where you're going to die, right? So Shebna, believing that his position was secure, such that when Assyria would conquer Jerusalem, that Shebna himself would maintain his position because he had conspired with the Assyrians, Shebna had a large tomb built in Jerusalem to commemorate his great achievements. And he put as an epithet on his tomb, all of his uh, accomplishments were engraved in the granite of that tomb, so to speak. Now that gives you the context as you come to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, what have you here, Shebna? Whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher, sepulcher here and he who hews himself a sepulcher on high who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There, in that large country, not in Jerusalem, there you shall die. There your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your house, and from your position, he will pull you down. The judgment of God proclaimed against Shebna, right? It's terrifying, isn't it? Terrifying. Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah 22, uh, tells the story of a man by the name of Thomas More. Thomas More basically held the same office as Shebna the scribe. He was Lord Chancellor to the King of England. So Lord Ch Chancellor uh, was a steward, second in command only to the king. And Thomas More was Lord Chancellor to the King of England. 
Described as a bitter enemy of the gospel, Thomas More put Christians to death. Uh, he persecuted the church, the Lord's church, and he wanted history to commemorate his greatness. So what did Thomas More do? Thomas More had his tomb built, according to Calvin, at great cost and at great splendor in London, the praises of his virtue inscribed upon the granite. And this was all just before he was accused of treason, condemned, and beheaded. <laughs> Pride comes before a fall, right? This is the condition or the, the circumstances surrounding this scoundrel, Shebna the scribe, in Isaiah 22. Look at verse 20. Then, upon this judgment that will be poured out against Shebna the scribe, Shebna the steward, then it shall be, verse 20, in that day that I, God, will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Interesting, the use of that term or that title, my servant. We see my servant in the servant psalms or the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 53. Sounds like that kind of a reference, doesn't it? My servant. Uh, God refers to, in the book of Isaiah, refers to Isaiah as her, his servant, refers to Cyrus the Great as his servant, here to Eliakim, my servant. Verse 21, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility, the responsibility of stewardship into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David, verse 22, I will lay on his shoulder. Do you see? The same reference. This is a direct quote in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. In other words, the government will be on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Quoted in Revelation 3, 7. I will fasten, verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Well, if you know anything about the story of Eliakim, he doesn't make it. <laughs> Eliakim would later be removed from office and would later be driven out of Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Eliakim is just a man. And Eliakim can't fulfill as a man, as a fallen man, as a sinful man. Eliakim is incapable of fulfilling the calling which the Lord has placed on him, so to speak. The calling. What we need? We need a perfect steward. We need a righteous steward. We need one who is holy and true. Do you see? We need a faithful steward. We need one who has been given the keys of David, the one who's been given the mercies, the clear mercies of David, right? We need one who is the one to inhabit the throne of David forever and forever, the one who is king over an everlasting kingdom. That's the one that we need. Eliakim's not that one. But you see the connection, don't you? The government upon his shoulder. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, and see if you hear the connections. For unto us, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Eliakim was to be like a father to Jerusalem, right? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So what do we see here? When we put, when we put this together, what do we see? 
through direct quotation, through direct quotation, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, directly quoting Isaiah chapter 22, verses 21 and following, verses 22, through direct quotation, we see the Spirit of God, the ultimate author of Scripture, weaving together for us Old Testament references and Old Testament history that points us to Jesus Christ, right? that points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He is the one. He is the child who was born, the son that is given. Eliakim, Eliakim then, is a typological figure. He's a type a typological figure as one who is given stewardship over the house of David, and that stewardship pointing forward to Jesus Christ, that stewardship ultimately fulfilled in the one for whom it was meant all along, right? Ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Adam, as Paul says in Romans, was a type of him who was to come. Eliakim, you could say, is a type of him who is to come, right? A type, a shadow, an iteration, uh, a temporary picture, if you will, an illustration of a greater, a far greater, glorious, heavenly fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Eliakim is just another man, just another man. Eliakim is going to be removed from his office. Jesus Christ holds the key of David forever. Do you see? Eliakim can't hold it. Jesus Christ holds it forever. He is holy. He is true. He is the one who will forever open a door which no one can shut. He is the one who holds the key. Incidentally, it's interesting. At the time of Jesus Christ, right, in the first century, who were those who were envious of the position that Jesus Christ held? Who were those who were guilty of the sin of envy? The Pharisees, the Jews, right? Who wanted to see him executed? Who wanted to see Jesus Christ executed so that they could maintain or retain their office? Who conspired with the Romans to have it done? You see the similarities, the connections? This is an example of typology in the Bible. It's, it's that, that connection, those connections, clearly referenced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in a direct quote in his address to the church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, he directly quotes Isaiah 22, verse 22. Right? Direct quote. So he is drawing our attention to that historical event. He's drawing our attention to that historical account and showing us how he is the far greater fulfillment of that historical picture. Does that make sense? He's saying... I am the one who opens and no one shuts, right? I am the one who shuts, no one opens. I hold the key, right? And I'm the one, Jesus Christ is saying, I'm the one worthy to hold the key. I am the great fulfillment of that picture. And the Lord Jesus Christ in the language of scripture in those historical events shows us that. Those events of history were actual events in history, those things actually took place and history orchestrated by God who is sovereign over history to point us to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Absolutely awesome. I'm gonna wear that word out tonight. Awesome, it is awesome. <laughs> if you disregard this way in which God reveals biblical truth to us, then you're gonna miss a beautiful and sovereign way in which God reveals it. You're gonna miss much of the Bible and how God reveals himself. 
we want to see how God does this in Scripture. And this is done through direct quotation, Revelation chapter 3. So back in Revelation 3 then, back in Revelation 3. What is this supposed to communicate to the church at Philadelphia? Right? What is this supposed to communicate? What, what should this communicate to us, uh, the church militant here, the outskirts of Orlando? The church of Philadelphia was small. The Lord says of them that they have little strength, little strength, not unlike Israel surrounded by Assyrians, not unlike Israel besieged by a fearsome foe, a fearsome enemy, the church is surrounded by a fearsome enemy, an imposing foe. Our enemy mocks us like the Rob Shaka mocked Israel. Defeat would often appear to be, appear to be certain and we have traitors in our midst. But there is there the preeminent one who walks among us, who holds the key of David. The one who walks amongst us holds the key of David, and he is victorious. He has the victory. The victory is already won. He is the one with all authority. He is the one who holds the key to the everlasting kingdom. Ultimate authority over the door. Ultimate authority over who enters. He opens, no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens, right? He is the one who says to his people, verse 8, I know your works. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and not denied my name. Verse 9, indeed, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, those treacherous, traitorous Shebnas. Indeed, verse 9, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Christians at this time were sometimes spared the awful implications of emperor worship, sometimes spared that, the emperor cult. And when they were spared, it was often because they were thought by many Romans to be a sect of Judaism, right? So Judaism was considered to be a religio licita or a legal religion in the empire. And sometimes Christians um, were grouped under the umbrella or as a sect of Judaism and without understanding, the Romans considered some Christian groups to be religio licita, legal religions, because they were considered to be a sect of Judaism, which was a legal religion. The Jews, however, despised Christians, refused them entrance into their synagogues, reported Christians to Roman officials, and often outed Christians as religio illicita, or illegal, an illegal religion. And Jews subjected Christians then to punishments related to their refusal to confess Caesar as Lord. And as we've looked at other churches already, those punishments often meant death. Not just exile, not just imprisonment, but death. And many of the martyrs of the early church were martyred for their refusal to confess Caesar as Lord. So the Jews, what were the Jews doing? The Jews thought to shut the door of the kingdom to Christians. The Jews thought to themselves, they're on the outside. 
We're going to shut the door of the kingdom to Jewish converts and to Gentile Christians. Christians were shut out of the synagogues. Christians were shut out of the guilds, pagan society. Christians were shut out of society. Christians were shut out. Christians today, increasingly shut out of every social sphere, right? Shut out. Christianity shut out. Sometimes people will be accepted into a social sphere, but accepted only on the condition that they keep their mouth shut. Because if it's a Christian that's being accepted into that social sphere, as soon as that Christian opens his mouth for Jesus Christ, which just so happens to be what Christians are supposed to do and often do, that one is going to be then shut out, right? Shut out of that social sphere. Increasingly today, Christians pushed out of every social sphere. Christians shut out of every financial sphere. Christians increasingly shut out of every business sphere, every educational sphere. Christians being shut out, increasingly shut out from society. Now, is that not true? We see that happening before our very eyes today, right? Increasingly, this world, the doors of this world, are being increasingly shut to us. Do you realize how increasingly difficult it is for a Christian to live openly as a Christian and do anything in public without being ostracized as bigoted or backward. And that even among professing Christians, okay? (laughs) We know that to be true. Doors are being increasingly shut to us. The Lord's people, the Lord's people are true Israel. Those who are Jews, who who say they are Jews, The Lord says they lie. They are of the synagogue of Satan, verse 9. They say they are Jews, but are not. They lie. I'll make them come and worship before your feet. The Lord's people, the Lord's people are true Israel. The Lord's people represent the true sunagoge, the gathering together, or the assembly of God. Lord's people are the true synagogue, the true assembly of God. Those ethnic Jews who are a part of Judaism, those ethnic Jews say that they are Jews, but they are not Jews, God says. They lie. They are, in fact, a synagogue of Satan. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, But he is a Jew, a true Jew, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. Regeneration, right? Being born again. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but praise is from God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, not those who are of the flesh, right? Those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. The children of the promise are the children of God. Those who say they are Jews and lie presume to shut the door of the kingdom to you who have turned to Jesus Christ in faith. They presume to shut the door to these in the first century who are a part of the gathered people of God, they presume to shut the door of the kingdom to those who have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. You see the hypocrisy of that and the wickedness of that. Jesus Christ, who is holy and true, says no, absolutely not. They may presume to close a door. I open one. He says, verse eight, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. 
an open door to the kingdom. He is the one with the key of David, right? He's the one that holds the key of David. This is an open door to the kingdom. He's the one who opens and no one shuts. He says, I know your deeds. Unlike the church at Sardis, whose deeds have not yet been found perfect before God or not yet indicative of a living and thriving faith in Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus says, I know your works and behold, I set before you an open door. I know your works and I welcome you in. You see, their works giving evidence of a living faith. Their works giving evidence of a true faith in Jesus Christ. Their deeds give evidence or manifest the fruit of a living faith. In other words, in contrast, in contrast to the church at Sardis, their deeds have given testimony of the veracity and legitimacy of their faith. Jesus says, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. He set before them an open door that no one can shut because he says, you have little strength. (laughs) You have little strength. In other words, you can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. Jesus says, I've opened it for you. The key isn't man-made, right? The key is not human wisdom. The key is not held by the state. The key is not held by the Jews. It is power and authority that has been vested in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the steward of the kingdom. The government has been laid upon his shoulder, so to speak, and he is the one who has authority over the door. And what has he said? Come to me, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, my yoke upon you. My burden is light, right? My yoke is light, my burden easy. He is the steward of the kingdom. And he says to this little weak church in Philadelphia, you've kept my word, you have not denied my name. They have not denied him or his words before men. When Jesus says that if you deny me and my words, I'll deny you before my father who's in heaven. They've not denied his name. They've not denied him. They've not denied his word before men. That means the church at Philadelphia, small though it was, is a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. And a faithful witness. He will, deny, he will not deny them before his Father who is in heaven. We'll look at more, uh, more at this in the weeks to come. Suffice for now to say, this church at Philadelphia, small and weak, but tremendously blessed, right? Tremendously blessed. The Lord set before them an open door, and in the power that he supplies, they were good and faithful slaves. If we fall, brothers and sisters, if we fall to trusting in ourselves, if we fall to resorting upon our own, resorting to our own wisdom or fighting in our own strength, we'll find ourselves shut off. Apart from him, we can do nothing, nothing. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. We should embrace our weakness, embrace our frailty, right? Um, because in our weakness, he is seen to be strong. We don't maintain an open door with this world, which is going away. We're not to maintain an open door with the world. But we're to stand in the open door that he has opened and proclaim his truth to that world. We hold fast his word. We hold fast to his name. And brothers and sisters, we're to remain true to his word. We're to remain true to his name without compromise. 
Uh, when we are weak, he is strong. In the face of difficulty, we're to trust in him. Amen? For his praise and worship, we pray that the Lord would help us to do just that. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the example of this church in Philadelphia. Thank you for your work among them, your strength supplied, your promises and gifts, your encouragements. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who, though transcendent, uh, who is a God, robbery with God, not a thing to be grasped, equality with God, not a thing to be taken, uh, but you are being equal with God, Lord, um, God the Son. Uh, thank you that it is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ that walks in the midst of the lampstands, the one who has purchased for us redemption, the one who is worthy to take the key and to open such that no one can shut, to shut such that no one can open. Thank you that he has all authority over all things to the church as its head. Thank you that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, holy and true, that we look to in faith to help us as we live in this dark world in which we live, this perverse generation, this wicked generation in which we live. And we pray, Lord, please strengthen us by your spirit to live as you've called us to live as witnesses, as faithful witnesses uh, in the midst of this wicked generation. Lord, help us to stand in the door that you've opened and proclaim your word to a lost world for your glory. We rely on you knowing that apart from you we can do nothing, and it is our joy to do so, knowing that you care for us, you love us, you've directed us, you do. We work all things together for our good, even the circumstances, uh, uh, circumstances of history, to point us to yourself in your own glory. We love you and we thank you for it. We're so grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.